Hello, and welcome to the Flynn Talks podcast. I'm your host, Ajay Karpoor, and today my guest is Class of 1990 Flynn scholar Chris Mays. Chris Mays is a Flynn scholar from the Class of 1990. She's the co-director of the Energy Policy Innovation Council and director of the Utility of the Future Center and is a member of the faculty of the Arizona State University's Global Institute of Sustainability and School for the Future of Innovation in Society. She served as an Arizona Corporation Commissioner from 2003 to 2010, where she was also its chairman for two years. While a commissioner, Chris co-authored Arizona's Renewable Energy Standard, Energy Efficiency Resource Standard, and the state's net metering rules. Prior to that, she worked as Arizona Governor Janet Napolitano's communications director and served as a reporter for the Arizona Republic and Phoenix Gazette newspapers. Chris, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It's good to be with you, OJ. Uh, so you grew up in Prescott and chose to study political science at Arizona State University. What first sparked your interest in the field of political science? Well, uh, great question. So I, yeah, I grew up in, in Prescott, Arizona, which is in, in Northern Arizona and, and, um, uh, in a small town, Prescott's, uh, back then it was a small town. And I, I, I had parents who were really interested in politics, who talked about politics around the dinner table. Uh, my father was an environmentalist and, uh, was the founding member of the Sierra club of Yavapai County. And so I grew up with sort of, you know, that, you know, around me all the time and, you know, uh, and, and grew up listening to my dad talk about things like solar energy, which would end up playing a huge part of my life and, and being a big part of my career. I never thought, I never knew it would or thought it would, but, um, you know, I think that's where it all started. And then I got active in, in school and politics. I was class president and student body president at Prescott High School, those kinds of things. So that's, I guess, how it all started. I also love to write about politics. So um, from from you know an early age and and all through high school and college, I ended up writing about politics and 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 that you know sort of led me into journalism. Yeah, I saw that um, you'd you'd done quite a bit of writing for some of the two thousand presidential campaigns of John McCain and Vice President uh, Dan Quayle and George W. Bush. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, so I, I, uh, you know, after leaving Arizona State, um, you know, I, I uh, did my uh, uh, was, was did my undergraduate at Arizona State and was a Flint scholar there. Um, while at ASU, I was the editor of the State Press and and really sort of focused on journalism. And my first job out of college was uh, with the uh, Phoenix Gazette, which was later sold to the Arizona Republic or merged with the Arizona Republic, I should say. And, um, you know, I, you know, as a 22 year old, I didn't get to cover politics right away. I covered sort of general assignment stories and, uh, but I would sort of constantly needle my editor asking him to let me cover politics. So, uh, he he eventually did after much uh, uh, much annoyance from me. Uh, he did. Uh, they they would let me cover a few political stories um, at the Phoenix Gazette, and then uh, eventually uh, when I went to the Arizona Republic, when when the newspapers were merged, 
I became the the beat reporter for the legislature. So I covered the legislature and the governor um, at the time. And then eventually in, well, I guess uh, in 1999, uh, John McCain uh, ran for president for the first time. Dan Quayle, who is an Arizona resident uh, and his family lives in Arizona, also ran for president in 1999. And I just, happened to be uh, the person who put her hand in the air and said, I want to cover those campaigns. So nowadays everybody wants to cover presidential campaigns. But uh, back then, I, I guess I was one of the only people who actually wanted to do it. And uh, so they, they sent me out on the campaign trail um, to, uh, to, cover the, to cover basically the 2000 presidential campaign of John McCain, which was his, you know, really a signature campaign. I mean, it was just an epic campaign. It was the one where he sort of went through New Hampshire on the Straight Talk Express and um, really sort of launched that kind of era of campaigning, you know, no holds barred campaigning. Um, so it was, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience to be, gosh, I don't know how old I was at the time, probably 20, 28, 29 years old and, and, covering a presidential campaign for the first time. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Sounds like a really interesting experience. Uh, it was what, fun. What ended up uh, leading you back into academia after uh, reporting? Well, you know, I so I uh, I remained as a reporter for for probably five years. I did actually split that time up. So uh, uh, I went to graduate school. I went to Columbia University as a Truman Scholar uh, in. 1997, 98 timeframe, somewhere in there, late 1990s anyway, and uh, went to Columbia University, got a master's in public administration, um, and then came back at that point to the Arizona Republic to cover the presidential campaign, came home. Um, I just love Arizona. It's it's my home, and, and this, is, this is where I figured I was going to make my career. And, and uh, it was sort of after that campaign, after covering John McCain's campaign, that I decided to actually go back to law school. And so I went to, or go to law school at ASU. And so I, I actually left newspapers, went to uh, law school at ASU. And it was I don't know, actually in the middle of um, it was in the middle of my law school career at ASU that I ran into Janet Napolitano. So Janet Napolitano, who was then the attorney general of Arizona, was um, thinking about running for governor. And I actually ran into her when I was on an airplane on my way back to a friend's wedding in D.C. <laughs> she sort of I knew we, had, we I knew her uh, and I I from my time as a newspaper reporter because I had covered her. And she was walking down the aisle of the airplane. And I thought to myself, gosh, should I say hi? I mean, should I reach up and, you know, say hi? So I reached up and I sort of grabbed her elbow a little bit. I said, hey, Janet, how you doing? About midway through the flight to DC, she came back down, sat down next to me. And by the end of the flight, she had talked me into being her press secretary on her campaign for governor. So um, in the middle of law school, yeah, it it was one of those moments where you look (laughs) back and you're like, it's like, is it fate? Is it, you know, was it, I don't know, was it meant to be? But it was one of those moments where you look back, you're like, thank goodness. And I often tell, um, you know, 
my students, I'd say, look, if in doubt, network, if in doubt, reach out, if in doubt, talk to people because you have no idea where it's going to lead and how it's going to change your life, right? Um, and in that moment on that airplane, um, I mean, who knows if I hadn't said hi, she, maybe she wouldn't have thought of me to be her press secretary. But anyway, I, I helped run her campaign for governor and she won. We won by 11,000 votes and uh, I became her press secretary in 2000 and I guess it was two or 2003. And, um, and, in 2003, she actually ended up appointing me to the Arizona Corporation Commission. And then it was uh, from two, th- which is Arizona's Public Utilities Commission. And so I then served ultimately for seven and a half years on the Arizona Corporation Commission, which is, which is a statewide elected office in Arizona. I had to, ter- I had to turn around in 2003. In 2004, I had to turn around and run immediately for office. And it was the first time since I was in high school at Prescott high school, since I had run for office. And, um, that was, <laughs> that was tough. That was a little bit tough. It was hard to be getting up to speed on utility regulation, which is a really, really hard area of the law. And mm. I had just graduated from law school also. Um, and, uh, and then at the same time I had to run for statewide office, uh, at that time I was a Republican. I'm not a Republican anymore, but at that time I, I was a Republican and I ran in 2004, one, and then in 2006, because of the way those, the corporation commission seats lay out, I had to run again and then won again in 2006 and served another four years. But it was during that time that I had the great good fortune of uh, helping to lead uh, Arizona through the development of our first set of of clean energy rules, including, as you mentioned at the beginning, our renewable, writing our renewable energy standard for for Arizona, writing the energy efficiency uh, resource standard, which requires our utilities to do 22% of their total retail sales from energy efficiency. And um, uh, and then I helped co-author Arizona's rooftop solar net metering rules. And then after that, I went I, I went to ASU and became a professor in 2010. So it's been quite a quite a crazy, crazy, wild, bizarre career. And I, I just and I I'm very I feel very <laughs> that's, that's fortunate. Fantastic. Yeah, I feel very fortunate to have had a crazy, bizarre yeah. career. Yeah. And it sounds like also a, a lot of it is uh, a willingness to, to take risks, to, you know, put your hand up and say, I want to cover politics or to, to ask Janet DiPolitano to, to chat <laughs> on, on, on the plane. No, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. And I, and I would say to, to anyone listening to this or Flynn scholars or students, um, you know, take a risk, you know, uh, if, it, if in doubt, take that risk because you never know where it's going to go. And especially when you're young, this is your chance to take a risk and to explore new areas and to do new things. Um, but I absolutely, I mean, if I, any successes that I've had have almost always been because I erred on the side of taking a risk. That's sound advice. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you uh, more about some of the standards that you uh, authored, but first I want to dive a little bit more into what that was like to, you know, come into an office and then all of a sudden have to build a campaign. What, what was that like? Did you have to build it from the ground up? Did you have uh, 
other people's experience you could lean on. Yeah, it was scary. It was really, really <laughs> scary. It was, um, you know, I, it, you know, running a statewide campaign in Arizona is tough. It's, it's grueling. You have to, you know, in Arizona for the, for the, these offices are Arizona corporation commission offices. Almost always you run as a clean elections candidate. So it's publicly financed. You have to go collect $2,005 contributions Trust me, I didn't then and don't now have 2,000 friends. So you have to really go go out and ask <laughs> a lot of people to give you $5 and to sign a form and to, and to sign your petitions. You have to go out and get 7,000 signatures. So it's a lot of organizing. It's very scary. Um, and, you know, at that time, you know, not, not too many people knew who I was or knew me. So I had to introduce myself to a lot of people. And... Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was tough. And it was, you know, even though I think at the time, you know, I was not, not necessary an extrovert. So I think getting out of my own shell was, 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 you know, it's, you know, it takes a little getting used to, to do the things that you have to do in politics, but yeah, it was, it was interesting to say the least. And like I said, at the same time, I was trying to be a corporation commissioner. I was the youngest corporation commissioner, I think at that point, well, certainly the youngest woman ever to serve on the Corporation Commission. I was the first woman in many, many years, one of only, I think, five women ever to serve on the commission. And so being a young mm. woman on an all-male commission uh, in a really male-dominated field, uh, the um, utility yeah industry is, is pretty male dominant. So it was really interesting to be, I think, both young and and a woman um, at that time on the commission. Yeah, it, I guess you had uh, Governor Napolitano there, um, who's the the female governor, but I, on the commission, uh, it sounds like perhaps that was a little challenging. What, what was that like for you? Well, it was, it was interesting, I think. Um, and I learned a lot uh, from it, you know, myself, you know, I, I was also young and brash. So I, mm. <laughs> you know, I think when you're 32 years old, sometimes maybe you, you think you, you know, everything, and maybe you don't quite know everything that you, you think you do. But, um, you know, I, it took me a while to, I was very, very, um, I was, you know, I was very assertive and very, I knew what I wanted to do. I figured I had a certain amount of time mm. to get it done. You never know if you're going to get reelected. And, um, and I, and I, so yes, yeah, so you had the governor, you had governor Napolitano, but really we, I was on my own at the commission. I had to, to forge my own way. And, mm. you know, I had to figure yeah. out how to fit into the commission where I was 32 and most everybody else was, was pro basically, you know, north of 60 years old. So it was a, definitely an age gap there, but I had really good colleagues. I mean, I, the, the, the corporation commission during the time that I served, I think was excellent. Um, we, we were a very, we were a pretty obviously diverse group in terms of our ages, our interests, but we all cared a lot about the public interest. We all cared about moving the state toward a clean energy future. Pretty much all of us did there. Um, and, um, and everybody worked really hard and wanted to work in the public interest. And when you're regulating utilities, um, it's not easy. You, you end up having to make a lot of very difficult, sometimes unpopular decisions. Um, and um, mm. we were a pretty, a pretty cohesive uh, group. 
What what were some of those those decisions that you, that you found a little more difficult? Well, I mean, you know, back first of all, number one, you know, passing the renewable energy standard was was um, hmm. a, a fascinating process. It was most states back in the two thousands, or a lot of states, and I shouldn't say most, but a lot of states were sort of just starting to take the first steps toward. Um, enacting their renewable energy standards or some form of a renewable portfolio standard. It's called an RPS or an RES. And so we started that in Arizona. But keep in mind, at the time that I started in 2003 on the commission, it was an all Republican commission. And despite the fact that back then it was all Republican commission, we passed a renewable energy standard and we passed um, what I think what was the nation's leading rooftop solar rules that told our utilities, hey, you've got to go out and help people put rooftop solar on their roofs. This is Arizona, after all. What are we? What should we be about except solar energy? Right. This is like it's in our it's in our Definitely. blood. Right. It's in our DNA. Right. This is people think that Arizona should be a solar energy leader, and so. Despite the fact that it was an all Republican commission, I think you had pretty much uniformity of agreement that we ought to be moving in this direction. So, but you know, you you've got to bring in stakeholder input. You've got to you know hold workshops. You've got to hold meetings. You've got to make sure that the, the rules that you're passing are are legally sound. And so, it took probably three years to get those rules passed. And then the same, we had took a couple of years on the, on the net metering rules, the rooftop solar rules, and then the energy efficiency rules. We started working on a little bit later during my tenure. By that time we had Sandra Kennedy on board, commissioner Kennedy. We had uh, commissioner Newman. Um, so it was a split three, two Republican and democratic uh, commission by that point. So I, I had the, the fortune of good fortune of working with, both Republicans and Democrats um, while I was in public office. And back at that time, and I will say this, um, I really think that the Republican Party was just in a, in a better place in terms of its, both parties were probably in a better place in terms of their willingness to work together and to mm-hmm. come together around around uh, doing what's, what was right for, for the state of Arizona. And so it was because of that that we ended up with uh, the the 15% renewable energy standard. Sadly, that remains the law of the land. The law that we passed during my time in the commission has not been increased, despite the fact that most of our surrounding states mm. have gone to much higher levels of renewable energy requirements for their utilities. So why do you think that is? Is it... Um... Just that uh, it's become a more polarizing time, and it's been harder for a bipartisan commission to work together, or something else that's unique to Arizona. Yeah, I would say it's something else that's unique to Arizona. Although it's a little bit of both. So I would so we yeah. we have we had a period of about ten years where we had a utility um, that didn't particularly want to see renewable energy move forward, and uh, I'll not mention the name of the utility on this podcast. <laughs> anybody who's listening. Any- <laughs> Anybody who's listening is going to know who it is, and um, yeah. and and that utility really stood in the way of progress. And, and that utility, there's a new CEO at that utility, and and we're moving forward. They're moving forward. Uh, these the state's other utilities are now moving forward. So I think you're going to see a lot more momentum now. But we had a really tough period of time where 
you know, clean energy advocates like me were were having to to you know push against a utility that was really refusing to do what was right and do 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 what you know was right uh, for the state of Arizona and for its own ratepayers or for its own customers. And so, and then that same utility started engaging in uh, spending money on campaigns, which was an awful situation. So uh, utilities definitely should not be engaged in uh, hand selecting their own regulators. And, and hopefully we've gotten past that in, in Arizona. So it's been a really interesting, it was a yeah, fascinating time. Like sense. <laughs> yeah, it was a fascinating time while I was on the commission. And then it's been a really interesting time uh, now over the last decade while I've been at ASU. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you've been doing at ASU uh, since your time on the commission and, and what you're working on now. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. So, so I, yeah, I, as you as you mentioned, I I teach utility law and energy policy at ASU, so um, I have a course there. Um, but also, I work uh, uh, with um, do a lot of work at ASU with nonprofits and governments and uh, corporations and even utilities to try to help them figure out, you know, uh, what are the best policies to be enacting now as clean energy has started to become the cheapest resource available to our utilities. As more and more people want to put solar on the rooftops, want to utilize electric vehicles, you know, as more and more people want to engage in energy efficiency in their homes, you know, we, Every individual is now in every home now has the potential to be its own small power plant. And so we have a much we have a much more decentralized energy system in America. More and more people want to be engaged in that energy system, want to be engaged in the effort to become cleaner, um, to decarbonize our our environment. Um, And so what are the policies we need today? What are the laws we need today? to help corporations, individuals, um, small businesses, governments uh, get involved in providing that energy. So, you know, we work, uh, we do a lot of work with the county of Hawaii, for instance, in Hawaii, which is a state Hmm. that is um, really on the leading edge of clean energy policies. They have decided to go to 100% clean energy, 100% renewable energy, and so they awesome. are definitely, yeah, awesome. One of the, you know, like California, one of the leading states in clean energy. Um, and we have, we've worked with the County of Hawaii on, you know, inter, in, you know, becoming involved in the, before the Hawaii Public Utility Commission and, and uh, the County of Hawaii is a leader in putting forward and, and participating in those, in those policies. We also do work with the Navajo Nation um, you know, as the Navajo Nation has uh, begun to, to grapple with, um, you know, how to uh, keep its economy going as the coal plants begin to shut down. You know, we have a number of coal plants in northeastern Arizona and northwestern um, New Mexico that are now being shuttered because clean energy is cheaper than coal. Certainly, the utilities are shutting the coal plants. Obviously, also, we have to decarbonize our environment to deal with climate change. And as those coal plants, which are a huge part of the economy of any community that they're in, as those coal plants shut down, 
we got to make sure we don't leave these communities behind. So leaders like mm-hmm. President Jonathan Nez of the Navajo Nation have been saying, you know, to the Corporation Commission, to the legislature, to the federal government, hey, you need to assist, help us make this transition from coal to clean um, and from coal to a different kind of economy. And we, I think we all, as, 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 as Arizonans who have benefited from the cheap electricity that has come from these coal plants, let's face it, Phoenix, Tucson, we wouldn't exist without the cheap electricity that got produced up at Four Corners and Choya Power Plant and the Navajo Generating Station outside of Page. That's where our electricity has come from. And it's been cheap and affordable. And uh, the Navajo Nation, you know, we owe the Navajo Nation and the communities around Choya and the communities around Springerville and the communities around, uh, you know, uh, Escalante, a huge debt of gratitude. And it's mm-hmm. time now to make sure as these coal plants get shut down, as they are going to be over the next 15 years, that we don't leave them behind. So that's another thing that we were very focused on at ASU is serving these communities and helping them think through, you know, what their future is going to be. And, and then, you know, um, they can advocate as well for themselves in terms of, you know, what kind of assistance do they need from entities like the Corporation Commission or the legislature or the federal government to make that transition. Yeah, definitely sounds like a difficult balancing act. Um, yeah. Trying to bring some of these older facilities uh, offline while bringing on uh, renewable energy. What, what do you think the um, right approach or approaches might be there? Is it investing in educational programs to help uh, workers reskill so they can work on renewable energy plants or on in some other industry? Um, is it, uh, you know, subsidies, um, what, do, or some, something else from a policy perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, uh, it's a little bit of all the above. So I think one of the things that, uh, well, so to give you an example, uh, president Nez negotiated a package with APS, Arizona public service company, the state's largest utility recently, which he said, all right, they agreed and, and he advocated for. Um, uh, you know, for 600 megawatts of renewable energy purchases by APS from renewable energy projects that will be located on or near the Navajo Nation. So that's the first thing, you know, renewable energy projects in these communities that benefit those communities, bring revenues back to those communities to replace the coal plants. Number two, uh, $100 million in cash assistance to help bridge um, or to help the, the Navajo Nation develop new economies and develop new industries and, and create a glide path out of, of, away and into the future away from coal. Um, and then three, in the case of the Navajo Nation, assistance from APS in electrification projects because 15,000 homes on the Navajo Nation still don't have any electricity or don't have access wow. to electricity. It is, it is by far the largest um, subset of homes in the United States that still don't have electricity. And when you think back about what happened to the Navajo Nation during COVID, that was exacerbated tremendously 
by the fact that so many people didn't have electricity. When you don't have electricity, you don't have oftentimes running water. You don't have running water. It's harder to wash your hands. When you don't have electricity, it's also harder to charge a cell phone and call for emergency assistance. All of these things, you know, or have access to, to timely information, all of things, these things snowballed and impacted the Navajo Nation way more than it did anyone else. You know, I mean, it was probably the most impacted community in the country by COVID. And, and amazingly, when you'd really trace back the roots of that, it traces back to the failure of some of our utilities to electrify the nation. And so mm. we, we need to fix that. We need to fix yeah. that like yesterday. And that's one of the things that President Nez um, negotiated with APS around around these these closures that are occurring right now. But it's a great question. But every community is going to need to decide for itself what, what it thinks it needs to make the transition. Mm. And every community is going to be a little bit different. One of the things that I'm really encouraged by the Biden administration is that they do have they have placed a focus on this. They know President Biden knows that coal communities can't be left behind, you know, and he has said, all right, I've, I've got, they've identified $54 billion right now. I think there will be additional funds come to coal communities from the infrastructure package that they're talking about, the two, $2 trillion infrastructure package. And, um, and, and so I think they're treating it seriously, Jay. I think it's, it, it's, they're treating it in a way that, that they should. I kind of analogize it to the BRAC process, right? The base re, uh, reallocation and closure process for military bases that, that occurred way mm-hmm. back in, I think, 1990s. You know, when, when, we, when the, this country closed military bases, we took it seriously. We, we, had conversations in these communities. We said to the communities, we're not going to leave you behind. We're going to help you reimagine your future. And yet for some reason, up until recently, we were not doing that with coal, with these coal plants and the communities that they sit in. So we've mm. got to do that for sure. What are some of the other, um, you know, most important challenges right now from a, a policy perspective in the renewable space? Um, well, I think the most important challenge is we got to get it done f- faster. Um, we, I think that many of the scientists that I talk to, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm not a scientist, but I, I, I work with a lot of them. And, um, you know, so for instance, I listen to people like Klaus Lochner, uh, Professor Lochner, who's at ASU, came from Columbia, mm-hmm. whose direct air capture technology is amazing and I think can help bring us out of this situation it actually sucks carbon out of the air, um, and I and I think we're we're going to have we're basically at the point where we have to do not only renewables and energy efficiency and decarbonize our electric system and do a lot more electric vehicles, but we're also going to have to start taking carbon out of the air to get to the point where we are not where the climate is not uh, warming. Um, at the pace that it is now. So we have to keep that under two degrees. And, and you know, it's, it's imperative. And I, so I think the challenge right now, really, for renewables, for renewable energy, is how do we make sure that we're doing it 
faster than we are now. The utilities are not not uh, developing renewables quickly enough. But also, how do we do it in a way that involves everyday Americans in it, um, allows all Americans to prosper, including in historically disadvantaged communities um, and, and black and brown communities, um, but also keeps the lights on. So you've got all of these things you have to do. You got to go faster. You got to make sure that historically disadvantaged communities prosper during the clean energy transition, including communities like the Navajo Nation. And um, you got to maintain reliability. So it is an epic challenge. It is an epic challenge that's going to take a a lot of smart people all coming together around. Yeah, yeah. With respect to negative carbon emissions, what do you think the best way is to incentivize that? Because I I think I, I know you can make new synthetic fuels out of the carbon that's captured, but that again, just becomes a fuel that emits carbon. Um, so how, how can you properly incentivize companies to, to pull carbon out of the atmosphere? Is it a, um, you know, a, a carbon, uh, tax, uh, I know there's the, um, carbon fee, carbon dividend, um, sort of approach that's being floated. Yeah, I think it's, I, I think that's a, a, that is exactly the question that we need to be answering. And, um, you know, I know the state of California and, and other places are beginning to talk about direct air capture um, and the need for it. The federal government is starting to talk about it. I always I always hate to use the word tax because I think that that's sort of a political yeah. um, killer around anything. But it's something, it, you know, it's, it's some kind of an incentive. I mean, it's and probably preferably a federal incentive. It probably should be done at the federal mm-hmm. level because, I mean, I just don't think we have time to leave it uh, to a state-by-state approach. But if we have to, I guess we can do that. But we have to get to the point where this is sort of like renewable energy was back when I was a corporation commissioner, right? We incentivized it. We actually passed incentives, cash incentives for people to put solar on their rooftops. And and we subsidized the above market cost of renewable energy for the utilities. And guess what happened? Renewable energy declined in cost because what? We got more and more of it. We got economies of scale and we we drove down the cost of the technology. And that's what we have to do with DAC and direct air capture technologies. We have to make it um, cost effective. And, and, and how you do that is you incentivize it on the front end some way and start to bring down the cost. And I, I think it's, it's um, imperative, but unfortunately I think that there's just way too many people who don't know what DAC is and don't want, don't know what direct mm-hmm. air capture is, but it's an amazing technology and we're actually deploying it at Arizona state university as we speak. Oh, awesome. Is that yeah. um, through uh, Dr. Lackner's lab? Yes, correct. Yes. That's fantastic. Yes. So if you have a chance to check out uh, Professor Lochner's work, do, do so, please, because he's an amazing scientist. And I think it's, it's something that we've really, from a policy standpoint, we got to get our heads around. Um, and I don't, I don't really think yeah. that the clean energy community, of which I'm a, a part, has really done that yet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what role do you think nuclear power has in um, Arizona and America's energy future? 
you know, and I think it's it's going to continue to play a role. It has for many decades now. I don't personally believe that we will see uh, another. Uh, we we will probably not see a new nuclear power plant in the United States. Um, and I just think that has to do with the cost of the technology. And I think we're seeing competitors come on the scene like hydrogen um, that has the potential to be that clean base, play that clean base load role. So what I see is nuclear power plants um, continuing to operate, like Palo Verde Nuclear Generating Station outside of Phoenix, continuing to operate and then sort of phasing out over time when their when their lifetime is reached and then but now hydrogen layering on top as the next potential baseload resource that can be paired up with solar and wind and energy efficiency and other more variable mm. clean resources but I could yeah, be that's, wrong. That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I could be wrong. Bill Gates was working on um, developing some nuclear power plants uh, to be built in, in China for the purpose of proof of concept such that they could then yes. be built here in the U.S. But I think those plans uh, <laughs> fell through after the, the start of the trade war. Yes. And, and if, you know, I suppose that's, that's a great point. I think that if, if nuclear is going to be deployed, it probably will be in other parts of the world. Um, and, um, I just think that in the United States, you have so much working against it and the cost overruns that we've seen in, in places like Georgia, um, and on the East coast associated with new nuclear, so enormous. It's really hard for a public utility commissioner like I used to be to justify those costs when there are other alternatives available. So it's going to be interesting to see. Um, but those, those power plants, will continue to play that exists will continue to play an important role for the states they're in. That makes a lot of sense. Um, as we wrap up here, I just want to ask like, are there any projects that you've got coming up soon uh, that you're really excited about or anything that you want to want to plug for the audience? Well, I, I would say that, you know, what I'm really most excited about is is what we've we've already talked about which is you know working with communities um to make sure that um that they coal impacted communities to make sure that they uh, are able to prosper uh beyond this during this transition and beyond the transition and then um and i'm just on a personal level i i would love to see our arizona the arizona corporation commission pass some updated energy rules. Let's uh, let's get beyond the 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 fifteen uh, percent that I uh, wrote and passed, along with Commissioner Mundell and others. Let's get beyond that and take our 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 uh, system to a hundred percent decarbonized, as they have. They have a proposal before them. Um, let's get that done um, and uh, make Arizona a, a leader in solar energy and clean energy again. Awesome. Well, yeah. Thanks again for uh, for joining today, Chris. This was a fantastic conversation. Well, where can people find you uh, if they want to learn more about you and your work? Um, they can go to the uh, Energy Policy Innovation Council at Arizona State University uh, website, or the Just Energy Transition at ASU uh, website. If you so, if you Google either of those. Uh, you can find the work that we're doing and you can connect with me and you can always email me at chris.mays at asu.edu. 
Great. Yeah. And you're also on uh, Twitter, it looks like, at Chris Mays. Yes. yes, I should have mentioned that. At Chris Mays on Twitter. You got it. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks again, Chris. Talk Thanks, to you later. RJ. Good to, good to talk to you. Thank you.